You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Morning, church. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Today, I have the beautiful, wonderful privilege to look at the resurrection story with you. Yes, indeed. Um, resurrection story with you. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of John. What I want to do this morning is uh, look at the resurrection story with you, uh, written by an eyewitness of the event, someone that was there, someone that saw this. His name was John the Disciple, or he would later be known as, and we're going to learn in a second, John the Beloved. Towards the end of John's life, he wanted to write down uh, everything he saw and everything he's seen and heard about Jesus' life. Now, there were already other accounts, other gospel accounts written of Jesus, Jesus' life and ministry floating around, but John wanted to, at the end of his life, about 60 years after the life and ministry of Jesus, he wanted to write down his own account of what happened. Now, if you have a Bible, John chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning, and this is where we'll find the resurrection story. And so what I want to do is I want to read it to you. We've been in a series of reflections at Reality where we've been looking and reflecting on Jesus' uh, life and death during Holy Week. And I want to do that this morning. I want to reflect with you on the resurrection of Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 1. It says this, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, stop there. John is not speaking about simply a time of day here. Now, he is kind of speaking about a time of day. It was early in the morning, but he's not just speaking about the time of day. He's not just doing that. He's talking about more than a physical darkness, more than the cold darkness you physically feel before the sun arises. John is talking about a spiritual darkness here. John is talking about emotional darkness, a darkness that you feel not just with your skin and your flesh, but with your heart and your soul. The reason why John says it's still dark was because Friday, Jesus was killed. Jesus was executed by crucifixion. And that, at this time in history, that morning, Jesus, to them, is still dead. That's why it was dark. And Jesus' death wasn't just any old death of just another someone. Jesus' death was not just a death of another man. It was not just a death of another leader or another revolutionary. The way John starts his book is by saying this was no ordinary human. Now, we're in John chapter 20, but the way that John starts his entire book was, not, was by saying that this Jesus was, ju- was no ordinary human. In Greek thought, there is this word. It was called the logos. And in Greek thought, the logos was the impersonal harmonious and divine structure of the entire cosmos. The Greeks said the cosmos, the structure of the universe, was divine because it was perfect in its order. And the cosmos was not just divine because it was perfect in its order, it was rational. The cosmos made sense. So the cosmos, the universe, was both divine and rational in the Greek mind. The marriage of divine and rational, when, they, when you married these two thoughts together, they called this the logos. Now, John takes this word, the Logos, and this is the way he starts his book. He says that this Logos, this divine and personal force that holds the structure of the cosmos together, has become flesh. And this was utter insanity because it assigned 
the attribute of divinity to a mere human. This is how John starts his book. And if you were a Greek, you were reading the beginning of John's book, you would have been following along with him, you would have been tracking, you would have been saying yes and amen to most of it. Look at John chapter 1. This is how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Logos. And every Greek would have went, oh yeah, totally, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Word and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. You would have had no complaints there. Okay, yes, we're following along with you. And he, the Logos, was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that, light was, that life was the light of all mankind. You would have had every single Greek nodding. Of course, that's all the Logos is. It's the essence of life. It's the impersonal force that holds everything together. And then skip down to verse 14. This is what John says. And the Logos has become flesh. And what this would have done is would have blown every Greek's mind, maybe even made him enraged. Well, you, you cannot say that the Logos was made flesh. Logos is an impersonal force, and John is saying, no, this word, this Logos that holds everything together has become flesh, and he says, he made his dwelling among us. And you know what? I've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, and now what John does, he connects this Logos to a Hebraic thought of he's from the Father, and then he says this, he's full of grace and truth. So what John does, he wraps in all Hebraic thinking too, because this word for grace and truth were the, what was the same exact word in Greek as God called himself in Hebrew, chesed hemeth. In Exodus chapter 34, God said, I am love and faithfulness, that's my name. And the same words in Greek are grace and truth. And so what, what John does, he's like, not only is he the Logos for the Greek mind, but for the Hebraic mind, he's God in flesh. He's chesed emeth. He is love and faithfulness made flesh. See, this Jesus that died on Passover Friday was no ordinary man. He was not just a human. This was Logos the divine, the fullness of God in human flesh. So when Jesus died, so did their hopes. When Jesus died on Good Friday, so did their dreams, because how could you kill the divine? How could you kill the Messiah? How could you kill the one who was promised to rescue you? So when John says, while it was still dark, he was talking about this Logos being put in the tomb, and it was the death of everything. Now back to the text in John 20. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, what John is saying here is that the church is down to one person. On, on, on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday. Mary Magdalene, that's it. That's all that John records. She went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. This was a garden tomb. They would be hewn out of a rock, and there, so there would be this almost like cave-like structure, and there would be this huge boulder on the entrance of the tomb um, to seal it off so no one can get in while the, the body is there uh, uh, decaying. So she came running. Okay, wait. So she goes up to the tomb, and she saw, she saw that the tomb has been tampered with and that the stone has been rolled away. And instead of going in to investigate, she, she goes running. Now, what I love about Mary is that she's the girl in the horror movie who lives. <laughs> you know how you always have those dumb people who go to see what the sound is? Like, what's that sound? I don't know. Let me check it out. You're like, you're dead. You're dead. Like, there's no way you're going to live through this scene. But not Mary, it was dark, she was in a cemetery, someone messed with the grave, she's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, it's like a scene of thriller and someone has been messing with the grave and she doesn't stay to go, I'm gonna go look, what, what's, what's going on with his cemetery? Why is it like the stone rolled away? Let me go check, she's like, I'm out. She just runs away, it's exactly what I would have done, I'm out. <laughs> 
So she goes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, the other disciple, this is funny. The other disciple is the author of this book, John. And so when he writes himself, he doesn't use his name. He's like, oh, the other one. And then he says this, the one Jesus loved. <laughs> like, this is, okay, so he's, he's basically saying, okay, John was the last guy to write the, the gospel. Uh, Peter had already written one through Mark. So that's the book of Mark. So John's the last one to write his, his gospel account down. And what John says, he's like, okay, yeah, 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 Peter was there. But I was there, and Jesus loves me more. <laughs> and then they said, and then so she runs up to them, to both Peter and John, and they go, she says, they have taken the Lord. Now, this is very important. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where, where they have put him. Look, look, look at, just think about this for a second. This is very important. The reason why Mary didn't run to the disciples and say, boys, Jesus has been risen from the dead is because the dead in the ancient world, they believed about the dead in the ancient world what we believe about dead people today, that dead people stay dead. And don't think, oh, of course they believed in the resurrection. Everyone did that. No one did that. No one raised from the dead then. Don't have, as C.S. Lewis calls it, chronological snobbery to think that, oh, we're so far advanced now. We would never. They didn't either. No one expected this. And she went up and she said, someone stole his body because no one's expecting, not even his followers were expecting a resurrection. Now, the Jewish people believed in a resurrection of all people at the end of history, but they did not expect one resurrection of one man in the middle of history. Now back to the text, verse three. So Peter and the other disciple, him, started for the tomb. Both were running and the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Not only does Jesus love me more, but I'm faster than you. <laughs> now, I, the only way you can explain this is that it's true. Why, in the, why else would you put that in there? It's like we both ran for the tomb, and then I got there. For, I, was faster, I was faster than you. I, I beat you there. Um, I don't know. I just, it's, it's in there. Anyway, so, he bent, so John gets there, verse 4. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but not, did not go in. So I, I've been to the site where they believe the empty tomb of Jesus is in the garden tomb in Israel. No one knows for sure where Jesus was buried, but a lot of people think this was the site. And the place where they would have laid Jesus' body would have been, um, so you go into the entrance and it's a small little cave and Jesus' body would have been laid to the right of it. So Peter like peers in and looks to where his body was and he sees the linen that, G that wrapped around Jesus' body and the linen and, the, and the, uh, the cloth that was wrapped around his head and the cloth that was wrapped around his head was laid neatly, another gospel writer says folded, where his head was and his, his grave clothes were folded where his body was. And John stops at the entrance and peers in. He doesn't go in. I don't know why he doesn't go in. Maybe because it's too holy. Maybe because it's like stepping on someone's gravestone. Like you just don't do that. Whatever the reason, he doesn't go inside. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. So if you're, if you're new to the scriptures, you'll get to know Peter. He's like many of us. He's type A, driven, passionate, thinks before, uh, speaks before he thinks. He's very curious. He just barrels in. He runs in, pushes John out of the way, jumps, gets in the cave. He's looking around. He's like, probably just sweating because he's like, you beat me. I can't believe you beat me. I almost had you that time. <laughs> and he's looking around. And, and so he's inside the tomb. He's looking around. He saw strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So what's happening here is that this doesn't look like a crime scene. 
This doesn't look like someone raided the tomb and stole Jesus' body. Why would they take Jesus out with, and just like unwrap him? Like you would keep him mummified or something and like let's take him out like this. Why would you unwrap him and then fold his clothes and go, oh, this looks good. Let's go. Let's take his body. <laughs> so John sees this and John notices this. And John's like, no, why would this happen? Verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first has to throw that in one more time. I got there first. Also went inside. So John finally goes inside, and this is what John says here. Not only did John beat Peter to the tomb, John is saying here in his, in his gospel that he was the first to believe. He went inside, and he goes, he saw and he believed. Meaning, when he went inside, John weighs the evidence. Look at the evidence. Clothes are there, lying there, folded. It's there. The tomb has been rolled back. He, he surveys all the evidence of what's going on. He's like, Jesus, he believes that Jesus has been risen. But look what it says next in parentheses. Still, they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, meaning they couldn't connect this scripturally. Though John, the resur- uh, John believed in the resurrection on the basis not of ancient Scripture, but of the very simple present evidence of the tomb. Later on, John would connect all the dots scripturally. But up to this point, he's not connecting scriptural dots of the Old Testament. He's just saying, I saw the linen and I believed then. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And so Mary, when she went and got the disciples, they went back and she went back with them. And they went inside, but she did not go inside. She stood outside crying. And the disciples just left. They went back to where they were staying. They're going, what, is, what do we make of all this? And they left. And so Mary is standing there, and she's weeping. And she doesn't leave. She stays, and she cries. When people dear to us die, we cry. And we cry a lot. Mary's emotion represents the emotion of the whole world in the presence of the overwhelming cruelty of death. Death means a separation from you and your loved ones. Death means a separation from you and this earth, you and life. When someone dies, you weep. But finally, she has the courage to peer inside the tomb to see for herself what's going on inside this tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white. Now, they weren't there before. If they were there, Peter would have said something, guaranteed. They weren't there before. So she peers in, she sees these two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one on the head and the other at the foot. They're just sitting there. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now, the strangest part is that this doesn't, she doesn't think this is strange. That's the strangest part of this. She's like, and she sees them, and they're like, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they have taken away my Lord. She is so single-minded meaning fixed on this, on this Jesus, that she didn't care that she's seeing angels. She's so overwhelmed with sorrow. She's so driven to, where is Jesus? Where is his body? That she sees angels, she's like, just tell me where his body is. Tell me where it is. And I don't know where they have put him. But notice, she still doesn't believe that Jesus has been raised. Verse 14, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? And then he says, who, not what, who is it you are looking for? And then one of my favorite things in this text, it says, thinking he was the gardener. 
It's like, she just, that's her first thought. Like, and later on, Mary had been retelling the story to John. She's like, I totally thought he was the gardener. <laughs> like, I for sure thought, I, I would have swore he was the gardener. Now, this is my favorite part. I, I'll tell you why in a bit, because it's all, John tells this with like overtone narrative here uh, of echoing something else that I'll, I'll get to in a second. But you can understand why she didn't recognize him. It was still a little dark outside. She's been crying and her eyes are all puffy. She probably sees him and doesn't really recognize him. It's still dark. Her eyes are just, she's been crying the whole time. She doesn't really see him. She doesn't recognize him. Verse 15. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Miriam or Mary. And the original text says Miriam. This has been called the shortest sermon in the Bible, Mary, and the most dramatic sermon in the Bible. Mary sees Jesus, doesn't recognize him, and he just says her name. The resurrected Jesus calling your name changes everything. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, that is, teacher. You have this interplay between Jesus saying, Miriam, and then Miriam turning around going, Rabbi. One commentator says this, and I have to quote it because it's so good. He says, in six short syllables, Miriam and Rabbi, and in just about that many seconds, the world became a different place. Death, once final, has met its match. There is a reality, someone, more final than death. That is the compact meeting, meaning of this meeting. If it really happened, everything in life takes on a completely new significance. Is there any other meeting anywhere else in Scripture or in the world history as dramatic or as important as this one verse meeting? Miriam, Rabbi. Verse 17, Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Now this emphasis, this in Greek is stop doing what you're currently doing. So she obviously goes and hugs him and holds on to him. And Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to tell my brothers. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. Tell them this. Go to those guys and tell them this. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had, he had said all these things to her. Now, I want to draw, just before we move on, I want to draw three things together. John is a masterful storyteller. Remember how Mary thought Jesus was the gardener? You see, the way John is writing this whole account has overtones and shadows of the first story ever in the scriptures. The Bible starts in a garden called the Garden of Eden with God walking with man in the garden in paradise, in perfection. And that perfection, we are told in Genesis chapter 3, was lost. And how was it lost? How was paradise lost? How was perfection lost? By a woman giving man the deadly fruit. But now, a woman is told to announce life to men. A woman, Mary Magdalene, delivers the message of him who raises the dead. And if you recall in Genesis, what was guarding the entrance back into paradise when Adam and Eve were kicked out. Two angels. Kind of like the two angels that were sitting where Jesus once lay. What John is saying 
is that what is lost and what was lost in the Garden of Eden has been reclaimed in the Garden Tomb. What has been lost in the Garden of Eden, presence with God, back into perfection, has now been reclaimed and reversed by the Garden Tomb, by the resurrection of the dead. Now, I want to read the rest of the text, just read it to you, because at the end of it I want to draw a couple of things, just two things. Let me just read the rest of the text. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, pay attention to this because I'm going to come back to it, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Shalom, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side where he was pierced with a spear through his heart to make sure he was really dead. Roman centurions were really good at, make, at execution. They pierced his heart. He said, look at the wound of my side. Look at my hands from the cross. The disciples were overjoyed. You cannot get a more powerful word than this. I know that word might be overused, but they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's unbelievable, Thomas is saying. People don't rise from the dead. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though, though the doors were locked, Jesus came in. Okay, so this is the second time John says this. The doors were locked. Jesus can, like, go through doors or is really good at opening door, locked doors. Like, he knows how to do the thing, like, in the movies, and just pops in and closes them behind him. It's like, shalom. Or he walks through them. Either way, John's like, that's pretty crazy. There were doors were locked. Jesus comes in again and says, shalom. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, he goes right to Thomas. He goes, Thomas, hey, put your finger here. Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe until I see it. And Jesus is like, and now, I don't know if Jesus like eavesdropped or like disciples were praying like, God, he doesn't believe you. I don't, no one knows how Jesus found out about this or the fact that he's God and he knows everything. But he goes in and he goes, Peter, look. Look and see. Come and reach out your hand and put your hand into my side. Actually feel where, I, where, the, where the spear went through. Feel it. Feel it. And he says this to him. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas said to him, the greatest confession that's recorded in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet have believed. Everyone, this is the Easter story as told by the disciple John. It's beautiful. It's full of wonder and honest in its detail. I want to draw to your attention two things quickly in this text that are, I believe, the two questions humanity has always tried to face. The first is the fear of death, and the second is the hope of belief. First, the fear of death. I want to draw your attention to verse 19. It says, on the evening of the first Easter, the disciples were together, and they were hiding in a locked room for fear of the Jews. They were hiding. Now, at this point, no one has seen the body, the resurrected body of Jesus, except for Mary Magdalene. This was all too fresh for them in their minds, and they couldn't even just get their minds around it. So they thought someone stole the body. This is what everyone thought. They're like, okay, we don't know. We can't really put all the evidence together, together but probably someone stole the body, and they're going to do a cleanup operation and kill everyone associated with Jesus. The Jews are going to find us and kill us, just like they killed Jesus. They're going to hand, them, hand us over like they handed him over and kill us like they killed him. They're going to do a mop-up operation. Let's hide for fear of the Jews. So they hid, and they hid out of fear, the fear of death. Atheist philosopher Luke Ferry, who's a professor at the University of Paris, recently wrote, written a book called 
A Brief History of Thought. And in it, he sums up 2,000 plus years of philosophy and just 250 readable pages. It's a great book. In the introduction to his book, he says that all philosophy, secular and religious philosophy or religion itself, throughout history, is trying to deal with one thing and one thing only. Every human philosophy and every religious philosophy or every religion is dealing with one thing, death. If you boil down any philosophy, it's death. He calls it the quest for salvation. He argues that the fear of death in all of its forms scares us. He says it's, if it's biological death, if it's death of, of a job or a career or death of moments that we never get to relive again, we all fear dying. He says the only man aware, the, that only man is aware that his days are numbered. Only humanity are, is aware that his days are numbered and that the inevitable is not an illusion, that he, must, that he must consider what to do with his brief existence on this earth, that we have to do something. That not only do we fear death, but we want to live good. We want to live rightly. We want this life to matter. We get one shot, and only humans are conscious of this. This is unique to humanity, he says. We don't want our lives to be wasted. Even if we're not aware of it, he writes, deep down, we all fear death. We can't accept death. It's foreign to us. He says what we try to do in American culture or Western culture is just stay distracted. If we're just distracted enough, if we just go to the movies enough, and by the next gadget, if we just stay distracted enough, we won't think about death. We'll, we'll laugh life off. We'll be a fool and laugh life off, and we won't have to ever fear, feel death. We don't ever have to deal with death. He goes, but all philosophy is is dealing with death. We try to embrace death like death is natural part of life, but it never feels natural in the end. Steve Jobs has a famous commencement address at Stanford in 2005. He said something like this, the fact that we try to accept death. He says, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent and clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. This is a wonderful quote. And it comes from a worldview that says death is as natural as living. We are all part of death and life, so let's embrace it. This death is the way the universe reinvents itself, renews itself. But, but, at the end of Steve Jobs' life, biographer Walter Isaacson tells how Jobs reflects on death in his last moments. And this is how the book ends, and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling for you. Spoiler alert. <laughs> this is how the book ends. He says, on one, Sunday, on one, sun, one sunny afternoon, when he wasn't feeling well, Job sat in the garden behind his house and reflected on death. He talked about his experiences in India almost four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism, and his views on reincarnation and spiritual transcendence. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. He admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of a desire to believe in an afterlife. I like to think that something survives after you die, he said. 
It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe our consciousness endures, and he fell silent for a long time. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. He said, click, and then you're gone. Then he paused again and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. <laughs> Gosh, I love that. It's like Jobs has this realization at, at, that the whole time he's been creating and innovating, he has subconsciously been fighting against death. You try to befriend death, or you could try to ignore death, or you try to pleasure yourself or be distracted long enough so you don't ever have to be a part of it. And you can tell yourself it's a part of the circle of life, but deep down there's something so frustrating about death, so unnatural about, about it. Luke Ferry says that all religions, all philosophies can be boiled down to doctrines of salvation. Every single world philosophy The philosophy that you're living through right now is boiled down to a doctrine of salvation. That they are trying hard to save us from death and give give us a meaningful, good life on earth. That's what every single philosophy is trying to do. Now, what I love about this book is that how honest Fari is when he deals with Christianity. In the middle of his book, he has a chapter on Christianity. And he's so honest. This is why I re- and what I mean by honest is that how honest he is with the facts of Christianity and how honest he is with himself about how he feels about it. He says towards the end of his book that nothing, listen, nothing, no philosophy or religion can compete with Christianity. He says this. He says to say that the logos, the impersonal force that holds the whole universe together has been made flesh and that this Logos has loved me personally and died for me and then rose again promising that I too would rise from the dead, that death is not just something that's less painful now because of this philosophy, but that death has been defeated and that death has been defeated by love, personal love, and that we can have personal salvation. This Jesus is the best thing that's ever been offered to humanity. That's what he says. But he says this, but it's too good to be true. He goes, reading the facts, studying the scriptures, this is the best thing, this is the best philosophy that's ever been put out. This is why this changed the world. But I'll tell you what, as a philosopher, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. So he chooses humanism instead. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try just to live wisely and as harmoniously as possible with this earth. Another French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, said, there are only three kinds of people. Those who seek God and have found him, these are wise and happy. Those who seek God and have not found him, these are wise and unhappy. And those who live without either seeking God or finding him, these are both unwise and unhappy. Now, I don't want you to think about happy like Pharrell Williams sings about happy, like big hat dancing around everywhere like dancing your cares away. I'm not talking about that kind of happy. I want you to think about happy like a philosopher thinks about happy. Meaning you have figured out life and death and what it means to live your life virtuously and rightly and justly. That's happy. That's good. So which are you? I'd imagine if you're here, you're at least in the second category. You're here seeking, and wisely so. But have you found him? Have you found what you're looking for? 
Or is all I'm saying this morning just too good to be true? Maybe it is all too good to be true. That God can actually save you and save you from the fear of death and conquer death for you and put all things right again by you trusting in him, that is too good to be true. G.K. Chesterton says this, a mass of legend and literature has sprung from this single paradox, that the hands that made the sun and the stars, the logos, were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle in the incarnation. See, this is the paradox. The God who formed the world, the Logos, who made everything, became incarnate as a baby, so small you can crush his head with your hands. And his hands were so small that he couldn't even reach up and touch the heads of cattle. That's the great paradox. He says this, Upon this paradox, all the literature of our faith was founded. It is something too good to be true, except that it is true. It is, this is a true story. And you are not alone today if you have a hard time believing that the story is true. And if I, if in me reading it to you in John 20, there's something in you that goes, I don't believe this. John was kind enough, the writer John was kind enough to include the doubt of his friend Thomas. And in, the, in, in Thomas's story, we find the hope of belief. Thomas required tactile proof of the risen Lord. And that helps us because that is exactly what we all deeply crave. Thomas has raised our single most existential question. Has Jesus really, bodily, historically, in fact, and not just in devout wish, been raised from the dead? Has he really? Thomas is all of us. Thomas is a sincere inquirer, an honest seeker. And you know what? A week later... Jesus shows up to honor Thomas's honest doubt. And he shows up and he says, Shalom, look at my side. Put your hands where my wound was. Place your finger at it. Touch it with your hands. Look at my hands. I'll be completely honest with you. I don't know what Jesus, I don't know that when Jesus meets Thomas, he doesn't meet every single doubter so specifically. I don't know that he might not want to meet you this specifically this morning. Who's to say that when we have a real encounter with Jesus, it's as real as Thomas's? I grew up saying that it was against my religion to go to church. I grew up not wanting to have anything to do with God. I doubted God in a very real way until I met Jesus. And I can't say that my meeting Jesus was more real to Thomas on that day than it was for me in the day I met him. It was real to me, as real as touching his side. See, what Jesus says to Thomas is what Jesus says to me. Stop doubting and believe. This is what John wants to pass on to all of us hearers today. When Jesus has given us credible evidence of himself, and that might be through the scriptures, through the fellowship of the church, through answered prayers, through a physical appearance, through your mental wrestling, through the Spirit of God speaking to you right now, John is saying, look at them very carefully as they deserve, and then stop doubting and believe. The story of the resurrection is the greatest story ever told, and it's a true story that has real 
effects. This story changed world history. It's changed thousands of people's lives in this room. It's changed my life. Later on, when Paul, the apostle, was writing about the resurrection, he, say, he starts naming everyone who has been changed by the fact of the resurrection. And he includes himself. And though he's never met Jesus the way Thomas did, he met Jesus in his own way. And he says, I met Jesus too. And I'm changed. This is a true story. And I'm going to ask you this morning to stop doubting and believe, to trust. There is no greater story than this story. This is the story that every other story is trying to copy. And it's true down to its core. And I would ask you, even if you had the boldness, to ask God, show me, show me. Show me the way you show Thomas. You might be in here with doubt this morning, and it's okay. If anything we learn from this story, it's that God knows how to deal with our doubt. And you're here this morning by no accident, for a reason, for a purpose. Maybe God just wants you to stop and go, I want you to think about life. I want you to think about death. I want you to think deeply about it. And I want you to weigh the evidence. And it might just be like this. Stop doubting and believe. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you call us. I can trust you right now to call people to yourself. That you can say, Mary. That you can, you can speak people's names right now. And they might have a lifetime of doubt, a lifetime of questions. They might have insecurities and failures and, there's, and thoughts of this is, this is way too good to be true. There's no way people raised from the dead. And all they need is to hear that voice. And so, God, we believe in faith right now that you can do that. I believe in faith that you can do that. You can speak. And I pray during our time of response right now, a time of turning towards you, that you would speak and that we would turn to you and say, Lord. That you would boil this sermon down to the people's names. And that, God, we would respond to you in faith. And that's what we need, God. That's, that's, that's the reason why it's so hard to believe this story because it takes faith. And faith is a gift. And so I ask, God, that you would extend faith in this room. That even though Thomas saw your wounds, he still had to believe. He could have denied it. He could have denied the evidence. He could have said there was someone else. He could have said anything else. But he believed. And I, and I know that as you're speaking to people, they're going to want to doubt. I pray they would believe and they would cry out as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Draw us to yourself, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.